Well, good morning, everybody. Please do take a seat. And I'd love you to also do two further things. Number one is uh, if you could pick up a Bible and look back to 2 Peter 3. I'm sure that would be really helpful for you. Um, and the second thing is actually specifically for you if you are a cricket fan. Um, it would be a great idea, I think, for the next 25 minutes or so to switch off your phone just in case you are distracted. Um, we wouldn't want Matt, not least if you're paying attention during the reading. I'm sure you will agree we've got bigger fish to fry here. Uh, so um, as we do that, as we step towards doing that, let me pray for us. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you that you love us enough to speak to us, to teach Rebuke, correct, and train us, for righteous, uh, train us for righteousness from your word. So that as your children, we would more and more become like your son, Jesus. So we pray uh, this morning that by your spirit, you would be at work in us like that. And that you would help us to pay attention to what you have to say. Amen. A few years ago, a friend of mine uh, made um, some arrangements to take his girlfriend, now wife, out for a romantic Valentine's Day dinner. So he, he booked the restaurant, he arranged the meeting place uh, with her, and um, uh, when it came to the evening, the young lady was waiting in the place. Only my friend forgot. And so midway through a Christian Union Bible study, that he was in the middle of leading. The phone rang, and the phone conversation went something like this. I've been waiting for you at the monument now for half an hour. Why? (laughs) Because we had an arrangement. Why? Because we're going out for dinner. Sound of awkward silence and then phone being dropped, and feet not touching the ground all the way to a local florist who remarkably, uh, even though they'd been closed for a couple of hours, opened up because of pleading and puppy dog eyes and the promise of copious amounts of cash, I think. But the question is, how long do you give someone who's made you a promise before you begin to wonder whether they'll keep it? The climax of the Apostle Peter's second letter is all about God's promise that his son Jesus is going to come back again to judge the world. In fact, it's a a magnificent obsession for Peter. He's fixated on that day, or, or the day, as he calls it, all the way through the letter. The day of judgment, as verse 7 puts it. The day of the Lord, in verse 10. The day of God, in verse 12. The day of eternity, in verse 18. But the longer we go without any sight or sound of Jesus' return, it kind of makes us wonder just whether it's worth waiting for that promise. So Peter writes here to help us find an anchor in our waiting. Firstly, he says, remember. Remember the promise of Jesus' second coming. Have a look at chapter 3 and verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind, literally honest thinking, 
by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. The whole of the Bible has been promising Jesus' second coming. It's there in the Old Testament, in the holy prophets, says Peter. So I could take you to places like Daniel 7 and 12 or Amos 9 or Joel 3 or loads of places in Isaiah or Jeremiah or uh, Zechariah. But let's just have one pit stop in Malachi, right at the end of the Old Testament. God sends this message through the prophet to his people who were uh, at that time doubting God. They were, they were cynical and skeptical about him ever bringing any justice on sinful people. And Malachi says, well, God says this through Malachi. He says, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? How do you think you'll come off when judgment finally happens for he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap so I will come near to you for judgment and you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between those who serve God and those who do not the basic problem in this world is that we rebel against God and refuse to serve him But because no lightning bolts come from the sky, uh, we think we're getting away with it. And so we think, oh, there's not going to be a day of judgment. Or maybe even there's not even a God. But God won't allow the rebellion to last forever. I will come near to you for judgment, he says. And that's a promise that Jesus reinforced when he came for the first time 2,000 years ago. He said this in Matthew's Gospel. For No one knows about that day or hour when judgment will arrive. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, which is a name Jesus used for himself. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. So you must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Back to 2 Peter 3, verse 2. Remember, the predictions of the holy prophets, and the command of the Lord and Savior. Which is what we've just done, haven't we? The predictions are the promise of judgment. The command is the instruction to be ready. So I wonder, are you ready for that day? Do you think about it regularly? Are your lives lived in the light of it? To be a Christian is to live by faith, to trust in those promises from God. Uh, So just like being engaged is largely about 
getting ready, preparing for the future. So it is in living the Christian life. It's largely to do with the promise of a future before judgment in a renewed world with the Lord Jesus Christ. I find that the Christians that I most admire are those who think about this every day. They, they have this great sense of anticipation, of longing, of looking forward to Christ's return. And it massively guides all of their speaking and their living. But I'm sure as you're well aware, the idea of a future judgment is incredible to many people. It's just laughable. I'm sure you know uh, people had, that, that's what their reaction would be to, to hearing me talk about this just now. Well, that's nothing new. It was true in Peter's day too, which is why he also says, remember, there will always be mockers of Jesus' second coming. As he goes on in verse three, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the Father has fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And you can see their point, can't you? We've been waiting ages, and things just roll on. You know, the seasons follow one after the other, uninterrupted. Where is he? I can't see him. Yet, despite the apparent reasonableness of the question, this is not an honest inquiry. It's not open-minded. As Peter says in verse 5, can you see? They deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Uh, the universe, it, it looks to be amazingly stable and regular and predictable, doesn't it? Uh, so much so uh, we talk about the laws of nature. But they're not a law unto themselves. As Peter reminds us, that in reality, it's God who made these cycles of life in the first place. God said, let there be light, and there was. He said, let there be day and night, and there was. He said, he said let, let the land be separated out from the waters as he fashioned order out of the chaos of the cosmos. The laws of nature are the tireless whisperings of the Almighty. Reminding us that there is a creator and he is sustaining this world day by day. And yet, we deliberately forget that. And we also deliberately forget that things have not always continued as they were from the beginning of creation. It is simply not true to say that. As Peter goes on in the next verse, verse six, and that by means of these... The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Peter says that God has already shown that he can and he will intervene and alter the course of history in judgment. That's what happened in Noah's day. When there was a great flood, a, a great upheaval in the natural flow of events. Yes, you might ask. As one of my children did when we looked at this. Um, at Easter, but is there any evidence uh, outside the Bible that such a catastrophic flood has actually happened? 
Well, I haven't got time to give a full answer just now. So let me briefly mention that in many ancient and diverse cultures, they have flood stories with remarkable similarities to Genesis 6 to 8. Even in desert cultures, uh, like the Gilgamesh epic in Mesopotamia, uh, you can uh, find uh, these tablets telling that story um, in the British uh, Museum. It's sometimes on a display there in London. In fact, I visited the British Museum on my sabbatical last summer and, and actually uh, eavesdropped on a guided tour in the room where these tablets are, um, where the tour guide, I, I heard him say, that when these were discovered in the 19th century, they were a bit of a game-changer because basically they, they showed... Uh, that there was, uh, they, they told about flood, not just localized flooding, flooding of biblical proportions. And they made people really realize that, that because of that and, and other stories like it in, in other cultures from ancient times, from the time that would have been around about Noah, uh, that actually there was incredible credibility that, that there were echoes of that Bible story. There were, that history, that memory was written down elsewhere, showing that it spread all over the place. And while the geological evidence for the flood is, is much debated, like many things in geology, there is enough fossil record, there's enough in the fossil record, as well as the discovery that there are vast layers of multi, uh, there are vast areas of multi-layered sedimentary rock spread across continents and even between continents which would suggest the only way that could have really have happened if the ocean waters had risen to an unprecedented level in order to spread out the sediment across the continents and even to other continents. And finally, we also know that we have, there have been similarly massive catastrophes which have happened just suddenly in an instant and the world has been changed like the Ice Age, which is also really reasonable evidence for. People wouldn't really question that there was an Ice Age. So we shouldn't, therefore, treat the flood described in Genesis as incredible or even unusual in the course of history. So Peter says, if by the word of God the world was created and the flood did happen, it shows it is perfectly believable that, verse 7, by that same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. These scoffers look at the universe like you might look at the picture on your TV screen. It looks so solid and real, and yet it only exists because of the technology that is driving it behind the screen. And yet, in an instant, you can flick the remote control and it will be gone. And likewise, the universe around us it seems so solid, so real, but it depends entirely on its existence for the God who made it and sustains it each day and who can and will, in just one word, bring it to an end. But, but why doesn't he? Why the delay? I mean, 165 million people died violently in the 20th century. That's three and a half thousand people a day. That, that's the equivalent of a Twin Towers-like catastrophe every day. I mean, so why doesn't God come now 
and judge this terrible mess. I mean, it's a big enough mess, isn't it? To which Peter says, thirdly, remember, the Lord is patient with you. Have a look, will you, at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason that judgment hasn't come yet it isn't because it's a fairy story, because God has fallen asleep and, 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 and slept through his alarm. No, the real reason for the delay is God's patience. Patience is a, it's a lovely quality, isn't it? It's a loving quality. It's an amazing thing to be around someone who's patient. The Bible tells us that patience is, is rooted in the character of God. So in the Old Testament, as God appears to Moses after the people of Israel has been rescued out of Egypt and they've been taken through the Red Sea and fed and led and given God's commandments and then have been terribly wicked and set up their own God. After all that, we're told... The Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness. And here is Peter saying, he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I personally am so glad he's patient. I'm so very glad they didn't come back before the summer of 1982 when I made a commitment and became a Christian. I'm so glad that he has withheld his hand in judgment for me and many others. For the Bible tells us, teaches us that some will perish, that verse seven, there will be the destruction of the ungodly. But their destruction is not in tune with the heart of God because in God's heart, there is a longing for the guilty to turn and to come home. If that's not, not what's in his heart, then why did he send his son Jesus to die for us? So that we can be forgiven. And sometimes you read things that mirror this wonderful longing in the heart of God. I came across a story this week of a lady called Linda Harvey who was assaulted and pistol whipped until she was permanently disfigured and then left for dead. And as her attacker, Joseph Roach, was sentenced to a really long imprisonment, she said these words about him. I pray that one day Joseph Roach will come out of prison and turn to Christ And I pray that one day I will be able to stand beside him and worship Jesus Christ. Left for dead. Permanently disfigured. Extraordinary words. Yet impossible to grasp without God's patience. And in order for God to be patient with us, Jesus himself was abandoned to death and permanently disfigured on Good Friday for our forgiveness 
so that we can have time to repent and can repent. But tragically, desperately, we even deliberately forget that. We deliberately forget about God's creation. We deliberately forget about his judgment in the flood. And we deliberately forget about the cross. Makes me think about the words of Abraham Lincoln when he was president of the USA. And he called the nation to a day of thanksgiving and prayer. He said this. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we are vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we've become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. Can I ask you this morning? Are you intoxicated by your own success? Well, the God who gives you each breath, who gives you everything, stands waiting patiently for you to turn and come back to him. It may be that there's some here this morning and you know that you've been testing God's patience, maybe for decades, taking his gifts and ignoring him, the giver. Well, now is the time to do business with that word at the end of verse 9. Do you see it there? Repentance, which involves saying to Jesus, I recognize you as my maker and my master. I, I, I want to turn from living for myself, living in sin. I seek forgiveness from you through what you did in the, on the cross. And I want to live the rest of my life with you as my Lord and my friend. The reason that the last judgment hasn't happened yet is to give us all space and time to do that. God is waiting for you with an ache in his heart and scars on his hands. But he will not wait forever. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. There will be a day when it will be too late and it will become with the unpredictability of a burglar. Uh, the scoffer says, I haven't been burgled yet so it'll never happen. But that is foolish to think like that. The Lord will come. And today, the door of salvation is open. It is a day of opportunity for every one of us. But then when Jesus does return, he will close the door and judgment will fall and the opportunity will be lost. And I don't want to be 
emotive about this, but it's my solemn duty to warn you of that this morning and to beg you to use the gift of time that God has given you in delaying judgment. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're, you're already a Christian and you're actually just feeling really ground down waiting, trying to live for Jesus and maybe even you're close to feeling like giving up. There are lots of shortcuts you see that you could take if you could just put aside this book. But please see what Peter is saying. Peter, who knew a thing or two about living for Christ in a culture that was anti-Christ, he is saying, hang on. God promises that the end is almost in sight. It may feel like that's a long way away for you, humanly speaking. But it's not long till we get to go home. So hang on. Don't give up. Take heart and keep going, keep living for Jesus. Australian evangelist John Chapman is reported to have regularly said to those he worked with um, and, and to Christian friends, we pitch our moving tent a day's march nearer home. We are nearer today than when we first believed as a way of reminding and refocusing his brothers and sisters on where we're heading. And when his heart started to deteriorate towards the end of his life, he started to ask Christian brothers and sisters, please pray for me that I would be godly in the way I die. Please pray that I would be loving towards the nurses and the doctors who are treating me. Please pray that I would be patient with my Friends and family members, even when they do things that are crass and they they test my patience, even in my pain, for the great challenge facing me in my life is that I would die well. And for those of us who, humanly speaking, are closer to that, that is a great challenge to us, is it not? You see, every situation in life is a challenge to be godly. And the heart of godliness is a longing for the lost to come home to the Lord. And so Jesus' delay in return is not merely to give each one of us the time, the chance to make ourselves ready, to turn to him and make ourselves ready for that day, but to also to reach out to others as Christ does. And help them be ready too. So let me ask as we finish. It's not long now. It's not long now. So how are you going to use the gift of time that God has given you? Let me give us a moment to think that through, respond to that in prayer before we sing again. Let's just have a moment of quiet.
Oh Lord, in your mercy, please hear each and every one of our prayers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.